So let's begin our service in the uh, next part of our service then in, uh, in prayer. I thank you, Father, for the reminders this morning of who Jesus is and what his birth means for us. We only have a, just a small glimpse of what it means, but I thank you that even what we do understand is glorious and life-changing. I ask, Father, that you would draw near to those in the, got hit with those storms in the Midwest, especially with the loss of life and property, would you draw near? Would you mobilize your people, too, to, to step in and meet the needs that exist there as well? And, and Father, too, for the Gilman family and all the extended family, would you draw near, provide comfort during a difficult time uh, during this time as well, especially during this time of the year? So I ask, Father, that you would be with us this morning, too, that you would enable us to deep, gain a deeper appreciation for who you are and what you've done on our behalf. It started away before the foundation of the world and continues on even into the future forever. Just thank you, Father, that you are with us, that you provide your mercy on an ongoing basis. Help us never to take it for granted, but to rely on your grace and on your power in our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it goes without saying that Jesus is the focus of Christmas. And as we've seen during this last year, too, especially looking at these epistles of Paul, and in particular the book of Ephesians, that Jesus is the focus of the entire Bible. Now, the Bible gives us kind of a panoramic view of God's activities in history, kind of gives the general lay of the land. But it can be difficult to see Jesus as you read through the Old Testament. Any of you who read through the Bible in a year probably have that understanding already. It's easy to get lost in some of the twists and the turns in the story, the kind of this maze of religious ceremonies and, and requirements and, and the lamentable history of the kings, sad stories, the cryptic messages of the prophets that sometimes we just don't flat understand, and all those strange names. I mean, years ago, not that many I guess now, but there. I went for a hike, a day hike, uh, near Mount Stewart, north of Cleallo. And I drove on at that time what passed for a road uh, until it was blocked by a washout. And then I, with my trusty dog at that time, set out for a hike, a hike to a place called Spirit Lake. Now on the map, it was about two miles away cross country. So if I kept Ingalls Peak on my right, and then I would be okay. I could continue on that path pretty much in a straight line, cross country. Too bad I didn't have a contour map. After I hiked through this beautiful alpine meadow at the foot of Mount Ingalls, I came to this abrupt drop-off of about 300 feet down to the edge of the lake. I got a really dirty look from my hot, dusty dog who was looking forward to a swim. But I'd used a map, and I'd used all the landmarks that I knew to find the lake, but the end still came as pretty much a surprise. Now, when we come to the Bible, especially when we come to the Old Testament, we need to know the routes of the main roads, and the landmarks along the way that eventually lead us to its key figure, namely Jesus. And God appointed along the way various types of leaders to stand between himself and Israel, to stand in his place, and Israel being his beloved yet guilty people. And these people, these offices tend to show us landmarks, they tend to be landmarks, to help us see the routes that lead us to Christ. But there's still a few surprises when you come to the New Testament. Now this Advent season, we're looking at some of the routes that connect the Bible's diverse passages to Jesus. 
And among the clearest landmarks that we have in ancient Israel are the three categories of leaders that God established to lead his people. And we looked at prophets, priests, and kings. Now, prophets, we saw last week, were primarily revealers of God's truth to the people. Now, priests were people who were, whose job was to reconcile the people and God. And the kings were rulers and protectors of God's people. And these rule offices all look forward to the time when Jesus Christ would fulfill all three at one time. Now, these leaders stood between God and his people as covenant mediators. Because they functioned both as buffers and also as bridges. Now, as buffers, they insulated the sinful people from the Lord's dangerous holiness, you know, his white-hot purity. But they also functioned as bridges, linking the Lord with those same people who desperately needed his presence and his protection, his compassion, and his direction. So last week we looked at Jesus as the prophet of prophets, the capital P, prophet. And some of the landmark passages in the Old Testament were hard to relate to Jesus until we saw how the final role of the prophet foretold by Moses was fulfilled by Jesus. Who ended up being the New Testament? Surprise. Now this week we look at a role that's even more strange, even more unfamiliar to us. Jesus as our high priest. Jesus as the, being foreshadowed by Aaron, Moses' brother. Moses being the first prophet, Aaron being the first high priest. And to do that, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at the New Testament surprise. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Well, there's no Jewish high priests around today, so it's awfully hard to find an example to follow. So this is a category for understanding Jesus that really is foreign to us. But God preserved all these centuries of history with Israel, recorded in the Old Testament, so that we could have some landmarks for understanding what this category actually means. And all those landmarks mean that this is really an important concept. I mean, we would kind of impoverish ourselves as well as swerve a bit from the truth if we would say, well, priests... High priests, that's just way too old-fashioned for us. It's not irrelevant. It's irrelevant for us today. I mean, nobody knows what a high priest is, so let's just transfer the concept then to something that we do understand. Maybe we'll call him a a defense attorney. But instead, I think we need to go, before we do that, we need to jump back and understand what God meant by that term at the very beginning, not just jump to some analogy that comes to mind. Because the high priest does not equal defense attorney. It doesn't equal any other analogy in our society. Now, the role of Israel's priests was really complex. You know that as you read through the Old Testament. I mean, they were in charge of the tabernacle and later the temple, along with the sacrifices that were offered in both of these sanctuaries. They were the protectors of the Lord's holy name among his people. As a result, they were really concerned 
with anything that would make God's worship less than perfect. They were involved in rituals for cleansing and kosher dietary laws and keeping the feast that God had established. They led in worship, whether it be singing or also praying for the people. That's all pretty much foreign to us. Our history is just too limited to understand Jesus as this priest foreshadowed by all this Old Testament ritual. We need God's backstory. So that's why Hebrews 4 comes in so handy, because it tells us three crucial things about the ministry of the high priest, especially Jesus being its fulfillment. It tells us that Jesus is alive, that he's with God above the heavens, and he is the Son of God. In verse 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. For the first thing we see is that Jesus is alive. Because unlike all the other high priests that ever lived and died, Jesus lived and died, but he also rose again from the dead, never to die again. That's why the whole Old Testament system of the priesthood is over forever. It's not coming back. Jesus is the final priest between man and God because he will never die. He has the priesthood, as Hebrews 7 tells us, by an indestructible life. In other words, we have a priest, and he is alive. Not only that, but he's with God, he says, above the heavens. When we put a couple of people into a rocket and send them into space from one of the SpaceX launch sites, we're launching them into the heavens. But they're still within our own space-time continuum. Even if they landed on Mars or on some outermost reaches of our own solar system, it'd still be true. They'd still be in the heavens. If they could even reach the farthest star that we can see, men would still be in the heavens. But the claim made for Jesus is that he has passed through the heavens. He passed outside the limits of time and space. He's no longer contained within or limited by those boundaries that hold us in. He's outside, above, beyond, overall. There's just no limits to his power. And the fact that he passed through the heavens also calls to mind the ascension. You remember in Acts chapter 1, as Jesus is physically raised, at least as far as our eyes are concerned, towards heaven, towards the sky, passing through the clouds and through the sky into another realm, namely into the presence of God himself. So before Christ, the holiest place of the tabernacle or the temple was only entered once a year, and that by a high priest after a, a special series of cleansing. But God tore that dividing curtain, you remember, from top to bottom within the temple in Jerusalem. And that was the shadow of the true holy place in heaven where God dwells. Because now that way is opened directly. That parting of that curtain symbolizes that now we have direct access to God through his high priest, day or night. As Hebrews 7 also tells us, he also lives to make intercession for us. But he's also the son of God. He wasn't just a human that was exalted to a priestly place. He's the divine son of God who we're told in Hebrews also created the heavens and the earth. In chapter 1 he says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hand. So this gives his sacrifice its infinite worth. Jesus doesn't take the blood of bulls and goats into his temple. He doesn't even take the blood of a mortal man into the temple. He takes his own precious blood, the blood of the Son of God. 
And when the Father sees his sacrifice, this sacrifice for our sins, he says, that's sufficient. The debt's been paid. My righteousness is vindicated. My justice has been satisfied. My glory is exalted. And he forgives our rebellious acts, and he counts us, surprisingly enough, as beloved children. So our high priest is alive forevermore. He's with God above the heavens in the holiest place in the entire universe, actually beyond the universe. And he's the very son of God pleading my cause and your cause by his own blood, his voluntary sacrifice of his life. And then on verse 15, we learn that in spite of how lofty our high priest is, alive forever in the presence of God and the son of God, there are three other truths that he bring out that also still stand. He was tempted in all the ways that we are. He never gave in and sinned. And he's therefore sympathetic with us in our weaknesses. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. I mean, over 50 years ago, C.S. Lewis imagined someone raising an objection here. And you've probably heard this yourself. If Jesus never sinned, he doesn't know much about temptation. He doesn't know what temptation is really like, if he's perfect. I mean, he lived a sheltered life. He was out of touch with how strong temptation can be. In response to that, in his book, Mere Christianity, he wrote this. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. It's an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. Do you agree? The man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He's the only complete realist. So Jesus can sympathize with us in our pain, in our suffering, because he experienced excruciating pain and persevered with joy all the way to death. And he can sympathize with us in our temptation to sin because he was tempted in all points like us. For instance, I mean, he was tempted to lie to save his life. I mean, he was tempted to covet. Look at all the possessions that Zacchaeus had that he didn't. Hey, I'm sure he was tempted at times to dishonor his parents. I'm sure they were very strict with him. He was probably tempted to take revenge when he was wrongly accused, especially by people who should have known better. I'm sure he was tempted to lust when you have an attractive woman bathing your feet with her hair. You know, I'm sure there was temptation there. Also a temptation to pout, self-pity and anger. I mean, when his disciples fall asleep at the very last hour of his life here on earth, Probably had a tempted temptation, I'm sure, to murmur at God when John the Baptist died at the whim of a dancing slave girl. He had the temptation also to gloat over his accusers when they couldn't answer his questions. And above all, he had the, was tempted also to abandon his mission in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus knows the battle. He fought all the way to the end characterized by a sweating blood. 
And he defeated the sin monster every time. So he was tested beyond what we will ever experience. And the Bible says as a result, he is a sympathetic high priest. He doesn't roll your eyes at, his pain, at your pain. He doesn't sneer at your struggle with sin. He doesn't make light of it. In Hebrews 2, we're told, for because he, is, he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So all this leads to a, a great, practical, relevant 21st century conclusion. Because he's alive, and in the presence of God, with the sacrifice of the blood of the Son of God, and full of sympathy for his people, Hebrews 4 gives us two conclusions, two therefores. He says, let us hold fast our confession, and let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So our confession really is just our our unshakable hope that God is for us and he's going to work, continue to work in us to bring us to his final rest and his glory. And he says, hold fast to that. Don't let loose. Don't let go because you have a great high priest. That's the first conclusion we're supposed to draw. The writer is really spreading out powerful reasons not only for why you should hold fast to your confession, but he's also telling us that you can hold fast to your confession. Because God is for you, and you have a great high priest, and he's alive. He's in the presence of God. He's the son of God. He's sympathetic. So he says, hold fast to your hope as he holds fast to you. Because there's a tendency for us to see Jesus as our high priest, and us as just simple passive recipients of his sacrifice for us and the fact that he continues to intercede for us. But that's not the whole story. We don't get off that easy. Consider Peter's first letter. He describes what a disciple of Jesus looks like. But you are a chosen race. You all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, a lot of us, when you, if you associate a word picture with the term priest, you think of this person in a, a long cassock, a long gown with a reverse collar in front, and black, of course. But that has nothing to do with biblical priesthood. Perhaps you think the purpose of a priest is maybe to baptize Mary and Barry, or someone put it to match, hatch, or hatch, match, and dispatch. But that's not the task of a priest either. Perhaps you never really thought of yourself as a priest. But Peter states that you all, all of us, men and women, are part of the priesthood serving the king of kings. That is one of the key discoveries of the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. All believers under the leadership of our great high priests are priests. The priesthood of all believers. There's no real altar rail or clergy or saint between us and God. So what does that mean for each of us to be a priest before God? And what are some of these Old Testament landmarks, once again, that relate to the calling of a priest? Well, first of all, we understand that a priest has to be a human being. Okay? Because a priest has to represent humanity. To this end, Jesus laid aside his glory as the Son of God. 
although he was equal with God, as Paul tells us, and he humbled himself and became a man. He entered the human race, as we all celebrate, as a baby in Bethlehem. And we, too, are born into human society, and part of our priestly role is to represent other people and to bring their needs before God. So, as a result, we have to rub shoulders with all kinds of people in order to understand what their needs are so that we can represent them before God. Because a priest is one who has immediate access to God. We don't need another human priest as a mediator. God himself provided the only mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. So you have direct access to God through Jesus. And you, as one of his priests, are the channel by which others can have access to God's grace through you. As, the, as John Piper mentioned a long time ago that it stuck with me, our job is to function as a telescope. Our job is to magnify through our lives God's glory so others can see it. We're not supposed to be microscopes, but telescopes. Well, second thing is that a priest is one who offers sacrifices. So, and this is dealing with the problem that separates man from God. A priest needs to deal with this problem of separation, having to come to grips with this universal problem of guilt that exists. For this is kind of the cloud that hangs over us, that haunts us, that stays with us, that kind of dogs our footsteps and brings us into bondage every which way we turn. There's no person who does not now or in the past has suffered from a sense of guilt. And the answer then to guilt is life sacrificed. And a priest must therefore offer sacrifice. Of course, the Lord Jesus eminently and adequately fulfilled this on his cross when he himself became not only the priest but also the victim. He offered himself through the eternal spirit of God as a sacrifice for the guilt of men and women. So as royal priests then, we follow our Lord in helping bear the burdens of others around us. Paul tells us in Galatians 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Law of Christ, I thought we were out from underneath laws. What is this? What's the law of Christ? Well, John 13 tells us. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus says, this is the new commandment. This is the law of Christ. At the risk of using a shop-worn cliche, you're possibly the closest thing to Jesus that another person may ever experience. But I'll have to transform how we interact with other people. Thus you may consider the fact that we are their priests. Well, the third qualification of a royal priest is that he himself must have experienced weakness and sin in order to be able to understand the problems of others and then to be able to bring them to the Father. Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Therefore he, or Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And we all need someone to sympathize with our problems and weaknesses without condemning us. Sort of the people that you meet each day, 
I mean, sometimes it's enough to get someone through a tough spot just when you know someone else understands what we're going through ourselves. I read a story about a, a, a boy, a young boy, who noticed a sign that said puppies for sale. He asked, how much do you want for the pups, mister? $25, son. And the boy's face dropped. He said, well, can I see them anyway? So the man whistling around the side of the, of the garage comes the mother dog, and behind her is four cute little puppies wagging their tails and bouncing around and yipping happily. And then lagging behind comes a fifth puppy who's dragging a hind leg. What's the matter with that one? The boy asked. Well, that puppy's crippled. The veterinarian took an x-ray, and his hip never developed, and he's never going to get better. The man was surprised, and the boy said, well, that's the one I want. Can I pay a little bit each week? But son, you don't seem to understand. That pup's never going to be able to run, never going to be able to walk right. He's going to be a cripple forever. Why would you want a pup like that? At that point, the boy reached down and pulled up his pant leg and showing a brace and saying, I don't walk too good either. So looking at the puppy, the boy said, that puppy's going to need a lot of love. It's not easy being crippled. So if you've been crippled by sin, and we all have, if you're imperfect, if you have issues with guilt and resisting temptation, let alone killing sin, if your family life is not all that it should be, then you are eminently qualified to be a royal priest. You meet God's qualifications. Jesus wants broken people because he's making us new to serve those who still suffer brokenness and the ones who have no hope. Because you're going to have sympathy for anyone in similar circumstances to yours, just like Jesus has for you. So you have an exalted role, an active role, in God's presence. You're not chosen, possessed, and holy just to fritter your time away doing nothing. You are called now to minister in the presence of God as a priest. All your life now becomes priestly service. And you're never out of God's presence. You're always in the court of the temple. Because your life is either a spiritual service of worship or it's totally out of character. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There's a fourth qualification, too, for a priest. That is that God has to appoint him or her. Hebrews 5 says, One who does not, does not take the honor upon himself, but is called by God, just as Aaron, the first high priest, was. No man can ordain priests, only God can. So when we think of Jesus as our great high priest and our role really as royal priest to serve him, we tend to focus only on the need for atonement or maybe for having our sins forgiven so they can actually come into God's presence. And that was foreshadowed by those animal sacrifices that you saw so many times in the Old Testament. But it actually began with Adam and Eve. Remember, the Garden of Eden was the place where God met with Adam and Eve in intimate fellowship. That was a sanctuary. That was a temple. A place where God was present in a personal way. And remember that Adam was given two tasks. To work the garden and to keep it, that is to guard it. So Adam really was God's first priest. 
He was a gardener, and he was a guard. However, he might have been a good gardener, but he failed to be a guard. Because he let a serpent in. Not only that, but he stood by while that serpent tempted his wife and watched her sin and then joined in. But Adam was the one who sinned first by not following God's instructions. As a result, God had to put two cherubim there to replace him, who would actually be faithful and do the job of guarding. So as soon as our first parents sinned, Remember, they knew they needed covering. They tried flora, but God said, no, only fauna is going to do. He provided animal skins for their covering. That was the first sacrifice made to cover sin. It started early. And it follows through the Old Testament. So scripture at the very beginning hints that only the death of a substitute can avert the ruin that sinners bring on themselves by violating the Lord's law. I mean, our rebellion and the impurity that results from it and the rebellion make it wrong and dangerous for us to approach God's holiness without protection, without covering. So as you all know, sacrifices that relate to atonement for disobedience figure very prominently in the Old Testament system of sacrifices from Eden all the way to the second temple. We as royal priests have been reconciled to God by Christ's sacrifice of atonement. Now we can offer ourselves to bring the message of reconciliation to those outside of Christ. But there were other types of sacrifices that operated in the Old Testament as well. As royal priests, we need to see that our ministry before the Lord is broader than just offering God's forgiveness for sin. From the time of uh, Cain and Abel, we see offerings intended to express the worshippers' devotion of themselves and their produce to the Lord. When the Lord had them pitch his tent in the midst of Israel's camp, he gave instructions for whole burnt offerings and for first fruits and grain offerings. Remember, the whole burnt offerings yielded a pleasing aroma to the Lord because they symbolized the devotion of the worshipper to God. Nothing was held back to be eaten by the priests or by the people. All was consumed by fire on the altar. So those offerings signified the worshiper realizing that his whole harvest, even that which he retained to feed his own family, was God's gift to be used for God's glory. Now Christ's death on the cross was our atoning sacrifice, but it was also his own sacrifice of utter consecration to his father. Jesus makes the point in John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer, that part of his devotion to the Father was also to devote us completely to the Father. He says, you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So we need to walk in just in humble wonder in his presence and glorify and enjoy him Throughout our days, this is part of our offering of consecration, our total devotion. That's part of being a priest. And offerings of consecration also find fulfillment when we make donations to Christian ministries. I mean, look at how Paul considered contributions to help defray his expenses. Back in Philippians chapter 4, he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, 
a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So gifts from grateful priests are the pleasing aroma that delighted the Lord. In fact, any and all good deeds of compassion that meet the needs of others are sacrifices that are pleasing to the Lord. Donations that we make to help others, to support their ministry, or, or to help those in need, really, are offerings that bring pleasure to our God in their priestly offerings. Your angel tree gifts. Fitness category is a priestly function, once again, demonstrating your complete devotion to God. Another category of offerings were called peace offerings. And they were to symbolize the reestablishing of communion between worshipers and the Lord, which is what all the sacrificial system was about, was removing the barrier so that we could actually draw near and worship. Remember, for these sacrifices, the slain animal's blood was sprinkled on the altar and its fat and internal organs were consumed by the fire, but the rest of the meat was to be eaten by the priests or the worshiper himself with his family. Through these sacrifices, Israelites enjoyed food and fellowship in communion with their Lord. A whole other type of offering, but also one that priests did. Which, when you think about it, find their fulfillment in the Lord's Supper, which Jesus instituted in the church until he returns in glory. Remember the elements of the, of, the, of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, symbolized Jesus' body and blood sacrificed once for all on that cross. So receiving the simple elements by faith in the Savior whose death they represent is, as Paul says, the participation in the body and blood of our Lord. Sharing, sharing table fellowship with the Lord himself. I think that's where potlucks fall into place. It really symbolizes our love for one another and our unity in Christ by sharing a meal together. Hospitality exercised in your home is the same thing. It's actually sharing a meal together. It's a, kind of a, a, another picture of a priestly offering of a priest offering. So as Jesus' disciples, let's kind of put a ribbon around this, we get our identity from God. In fact, our identity is our relation to God. We're chosen by God. We're set apart as holy by God. We're appointed as royal priests by God. Peter says in the, in the very summary at the end of chapter 2, verse 9 that I read, he refers to God like this, him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the light that we live in is the light of our being chosen as holy priests. And the way we got there is that God called us. He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But Peter gets even more specific when he tells us the precise reason for our existence. He says in verse 9 at the very end, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the full-time destiny of a royal priest, to make the glories of the king known, to reveal him as he truly is. So let's just duck back to Hebrews 4, kind of where we started, and look one last time at the privilege we have because of our great high priest. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Every one of us needs help. Well, maybe I'm just projecting. Amen. Oh, yeah, that's right. I knew there was an exception. We're not God. We have needs. We have weaknesses. We are, I am, often confused. 
We have limitations of all kinds. We need help. But every one of, every one of us also has something else. We sin. And therefore, at the bottom of our hearts, we know we don't deserve the help that we need. And so we feel trapped, when you think about it. I need help to live my life and to handle suffering and to prepare for eternity. Help with my family, my spouse, my children, my loneliness, my job, my health, my habits, my finances. I need help, but I don't deserve the help I need. So what do I do? Well, I can try to deny it all and be some kind of a superhero, which is the big thing these days, who doesn't need any help. I can try to drown it all and throw my life away in a pool of some kind of sensual pleasure. Or I can simply just give way, which seems to be pretty common in the last couple of years, to the paralysis of despair. And, but God declares over this whole hopeless situ- situation, Jesus Christ became a high priest to shatter that despair with hope. And to humble that superman or that superwoman and rescue that drowning wretch, whatever kind of picture you want to use. So we all need help. And yes, none of us deserves the help that we need. But say no to despair and pride and greed and lust. Look at what God says. He says, because we have a great high priest, the throne of God is the throne of grace. It is not the throne of judgment. It's the throne of grace. And the help we get at that throne is mercy and grace in time of need. Grace to help. Not because we're deserving, because God loves us as we are, not as we ought to be, at least in our minds. We are never going to be good enough to deserve God's grace. Which is the whole point, I think, of this landmark in the Old New Testament. God planned for a high priest, a savior, a redeemer, a gracious helper, all rolled into one. So you're not trapped. You can say no to that lie. We need help. We don't deserve it, but we can have it. You can have it right now and forever. The book of Hebrews tells us it's to trust your high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, and draw near to God through him as he's praying for you. Let's pray. I thank you, Father, for your amazing plan, for the fact that even throughout the Old Testament, when we read some of those funny names and obscure places and crazy ceremonies that went on and so on, that you were preparing a time and the pictures of what it means for Jesus to be our high priest. But I thank you didn't stop with that. You turned us into priests as well. That's an amazing, amazing privilege you've given us to be able to come alongside Jesus and to serve the needs of others. Oh, Father, may our life be characterized by your new commandment, by, that we love one another as Christ has loved us, that we function as priests, that we actually offer our lives as sacrifices on behalf of others, that our lives actually demonstrate and show your love and your concern through our attitudes and our actions. Father, would you use us, please? Use us to transform our families and our communities and be able to one, be people that others call upon for help in time of need. So thank you we can lie on our great high priest who reigns forever in your very presence. We thank you in his name. Amen.